Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Greenville, South Carolina. The Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show we came to do all the things on Linux they said could be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a good call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour. It's another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. I'm super excited to be doing this episode here from Greenville, South Carolina with my good friend Jeremy Sands, the... Uh, is a benevolent dictator. Benevolent dictator of Southeast Linux Fest, and uh, my executive producer JT Pennington. Welcome into the program. Thanks. I don't think you and I have ever done a show in the same room. Like you've been on the show before, we've not ever done a show in the same room, and the three of us have definitely never done anything together in the same room. Yeah, there's usually been about a thousand miles between us. Right. Yeah. So I I guess let's start with this. Uh, there is a new project out called. Contena. I think I'm pronouncing that right. You can visit it at contena.io, and it's a management system specifically for Kubernetes clusters. Now, I was reading through this a little bit, and it seems like what it really is is Kubernetes management as a service. So from their site, uh, Contena Lens provides all the necessary tools and technologies to take control of your Kubernetes clusters, ensure that your, uh, your cluster is properly set up and configured, and enjoy increased visibility and hands-on troubleshooting capabilities. So, I mean, this is just a really cool project and something that I think anybody that manages Kubernetes would have to take a look at and play with. Now, that's not me because I don't manage Kubernetes. I I know enough to be dangerous and I know enough to hurt myself and to break a couple of machines. But I think that the idea of a platform to manage Kubernetes is an important one because I think there are a lot of people that would benefit from the use of Kubernetes and could leverage that technology in their business, but they're not a, maybe sure how to get started. And B, if they are sure how to get started, I think there's a concern that they're not going to be able to trust the platform because they don't necessarily trust their own management skills. And so this is something that was brought to our attention. We definitely think you should check it out. K-O-N-T-E-N-A.io. Of course, we'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. We invite you to check it out. It is a must-see or at least a must-consider if you manage Kubernetes. Now, a couple of things that I want to get to this hour and tonight. The first is obviously we're going to talk a little bit about Southeast Linux Fest, which is coming up in just a couple of days. Um, and uh, this is the perfect room to discuss it because a lot of the people that have done a lot of the work are actually in this room right now. The other thing that I want to talk about later in the show, and I've held off on doing this for this exact set of circumstances. I waited for the planets to align. I waited for the stars to come into just the right pattern. And that is we're going to talk about Gentoo tonight. And I've held off on talking about Gentoo because, frankly, I don't believe that there are a lot of people that really understand Gentoo and can really explain the advantages of Gentoo. And I'm sitting in, in the room for the first time where I believe that we can actually have that conversation openly and honestly with somebody who has some real experience, not just some people who are kind of playing around with it. And so I'm excited to to, to dig into that as the show rolls on. Getting can be a part of the program at 855-450-NO. We'd love to have you. Let's start by talking about self. That is obviously what brings all three of us into the room, and I think we're all pretty excited about it. Jeremy, I understand that a big focus of self last year and an even bigger focus of self this year is the remote attendees option. Talk about that for somebody who doesn't know what remote attendees are. 
What is the remote attendee option and how can people take advantage of it? Uh, sure. So the remote attendee option is uh, something for those who can't make it there because uh, even our most diehard fans, you know, family, work situations come up. They can't make it every year, but they don't want to miss the content and they don't want to wait for it to come out either. So, but it, it costs a lot of money. As you know, in the AV industry, AV is not cheap. Uh, audio is expensive and video is at right. another couple zeros. Um, so uh, for $5, you get um, live or near live access to all the talks as they happen at the conference, uh, as well as some coverage courtesy of Ask Noah live at the event. Um, and the reason why we charge a modest $5 is we don't want it to be expensive. You know, some of our most glowing feedback over the years has been from people who didn't have the means to attend your typical 50, 150, $250 conference. Um, and our, you know, the, the people who most appreciate the free option are the people who don't have an option other than free. Sure. They wouldn't uh, be there otherwise. So we, we, we like to keep it cheap even for the remote people. But the, the little chip in of $5 is both to help offset the, uh, the cost of AV uh, and is a way to entice you to show up because what you're not getting as a remote attendee is the hallway track. And that's one of the most valuable portions of any community event, in my opinion. That's awesome. If people want to sign up, if they want to get involved, they can do that right from the self page then. Yep. Uh, SoutheastLinuxFest.org. Uh, just register as an attendee like you are going to actually be there. And there's a bunch of options you can fill out. And one of them is remote attendee. As soon as you select that, everything on the page will change to update uh, that you're a remote attendee. So let's talk about the AV setup a little bit because I know that you and I, JT, are going to be manning a booth. Um, and it's going to be a collection of entities. Obviously, we're going to be doing Ask Noah from the booth. Obviously, it's going to be the centerfold in the first conference that MindDrip Media is making an appearance. Our video-focused Linux content, which you have done probably twice as much work as I have. You've just done it in the background, so people maybe aren't aware about it. But talk about what the purpose of MindDrip Media is and, and why we're kind of looking at, at focusing on that. So one of the things that I hear all the time and gets brought up is that the media space in open source is lacking. There are a few entities out there that, that do it, but there always seem to be, there's sort of a conflict of certain sites that are doing it because they're trying to become rich. Mm -hmm. And then there's other sites that do it just because, well, it's just something that they like. So there's no consistency. There's no actual dedication behind it. Um, so with MindDrip Media, we're trying to kind of take the open source concept that we all know from development and community and say, hey, why don't we enable everyone in the community to kind of get involved and get people to help, you know, we're going to conferences, we're talking to people, we're talking to the different developers, to different projects, um, but to kind of create an entity that allows anybody and everybody to kind of get involved. Um, you know, we have open calls out for if somebody's involved in a neat project, uh, just, just come to us. We want to talk to you. We want to hear what that is. We want to promote that to bring awareness to smaller projects. And again, it's just kind of the open source philosophy of we have all of us. All of us are better than just one or two of us. And we can accomplish more. Exactly. Together than we can separately. And so we're making a real focus, at least initially, on video content. Obviously, on Ask Noah, we focus primarily on audio content and brought a lot of uh, prominent people on. I think we've probably done 
a better job than most of the other competing uh, podcasts in the space do on making sure that people have a voice. And so if there's a project out there, chances are they've been on Ask No One. We've we've tried to give them that platform. Um, what we're doing with MindRip is going out to some of these people and putting cameras down and actually filming video content so people can see. Because we know, we know that 85% of all communication is actually nonverbal. And so you're only getting 15% of the intended communicated message through this program, MindRip Media allows us to expand that. Yeah, you know, we as a species, you know, we're very visually aware. And there's a lot of subcontext that you pick up when you're actually sitting and talking to a person. And it's a lot of those cues that really help you understand the meaning behind what somebody's saying and the emotion that they're saying it with. Um, with the text medium, you can read the words, but it's kind of lifeless. With audio, you can pick up subtle audio cues. But really being able to actually see, you know, the reaction in somebody's face when you ask a question, you can go, oh, that's a question that they are, they've been waiting for somebody to ask, and now they've been asked, and that you know they've got the answer primed and ready to go because they've been waiting to get that message out. Melanie Shimano. You're yeah, talking perfectly. about Melanie Shimano. Yeah, exactly. You know, when, when we talk to her about the work that she's doing with the Food Computer Project, which you can check out at youtube.com slash mindrapmedia, if, if when, when we asked her those questions, you could tell. She she goes around just looking for a way to share that story of the impact that she, not just her, she's had, but that program has had on those kids and and the and what it meant to those kids. And that's something that you're just not going to capture the full effect of with audio. Yeah. And some of the other interviews that we did at Red Hat Summit, um, like the Chris Wright video. Yeah. Um, like when you ask a question and you just see his face light up because he's like, hey, I worked on that project. Right. You know, and you yeah. bring something up. You actually get to see and feel the intensity that people have for the projects that they have worked on in the past and the projects they're working on now and how it all kind of comes together and that, yes, this is software, but this is also meaningful and valuable in our lives. So we have some really great technology that we're going to be rolling out. And I dare say it is the most technically advanced Linux conference that has ever been put on, uh, at least as it relates to audio. One of the things that we're doing is we are deploying um, network over IP audio encoders and decoders, uh, very, very purpose specific boxes that are that they, they run on, 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 on latency that is so low, it's imperceivable to the human ear. And we're going to have these boxes in every one of the talk rooms so that as these presenters, as these people who are so passionate and wanting to share the story of what they're doing are speaking to the attendees of Southeast Linux Fest, we're going to bring that available to both the remote attendees uh, and which they can join at, at the on the Southeast Linux page, and we're also going to be taking select portions of that and and bringing that in and incorporating that into a stream that we're going to be hosting at our booth. So if you come down, it's easy to find because we're literally at the apex of the entire conference. I mean, you come down one hallway, you run into us. You come down the other hallway, you run into us. And uh, you've been working for weeks on getting promotional material and getting you know banners and stuff like that. Everything's set up so that it, we really have a presence this year. That's going to be really cool. I think that's really exciting. And then uh, we're going to be conducting interviews there. We also have a massive announcement that's going to be coming, and we're going to share that a Saturday at 2 p.m. is when Ask Noah Show is going to be. You can, of course, catch that at asknoahshow.com. Uh, I don't know what we can really say about that announcement other than like, this is something you don't want to miss. Yeah, and to, to kind of loop back on the remote attendee thing, one of the things that's that's great with the, with the technology that we're deploying is that, you know, in, in the past and at other conferences, you know, there's a, there's a talk that you're like, man, I can't go. I wish I could. And you see the talk and you're like, okay, that's great. But now I have to wait six months until maybe it ends up on YouTube. Right. Whereas with the, report, with the remote attendee, I mean, they can say, hey, this is a talk I want to see, and then boom, they're now there. They can hear right. it. They can see it. 
Um, so I want to kind of toss the football over to Jeremy and say, you know, Self has has a, a kind of I would say almost a famous database track um, of who comes and who talks. But just not just specifically that, but in general, what are what are some talks that you think are going to be kind of the big key draws for the remote attendees that they might really enjoy? Um, as you mentioned, the database track is is kind of ridiculous. Um, generally speaking, if you're a speaker in our database track every year, you either own a database company or you're the CEO of a database company or you have a book currently being published by A. Press or O'Reilly about databases. Um, I don't know. It's it's one of those weird confluence things. Richard Hip, who created SQLite's a Charlotte local, so he's there all the time as well. We just, uh, for whatever reason, it's always, I like to say it's murderer's row when it comes to the database talks because it's like you, you see the occasional just in the trenches DB at men and they submit a database talk and I'm like, oh, you know, anywhere else this probably gets in. But man, man, it's tough in the database track. Um, we also, the dev, the, uh, dev random track is always very popular. It's stuff that isn't explicitly Linux or FOSS, but kind of tangentially geeky related. And it's all over the place. And that tends to be very popular. Um, this year, um, it, it's kind of shaky at the moment, but it looks like it's going to pan out. Uh, we, we, we brought Eric S. Raymond out of the, out of the woodwork where he, wherever he was hiding, quietly coding away on projects. Um, he has a talk he's going to give as a keynote um, about kind of the future of C as a programming language. And uh, anyone who has been in Linux long enough knows that there's an awful lot of user land in Linux that's that's coded in C, like you know, long and true. And it's interesting to see how C has held up for so long as a low-level language, but it's it's finally got some plausible replacements for it. I think that's a very provocative talk for the future of high-performance programming. That's really cool. That's exciting. And people will be able to attend those. Obviously, we invite you to come in person. It's a way better experience in person. I've said this a couple of times. I don't think self to me is not, I mean, as great as the talks are, it's not about the talks. As great as the beer is, it's not about the beer. As great as the food is, it's not about the food. To me, it's all about the connection to other people. And I, I've been asked point blank. People will say, is this a valuable place? Is this a, is this a place where I can get X or Y or Z? And I say, I don't know, man, I, maybe, um, you've said before, if you want to get hired, man, self is the place to build that connection. We but get people hired in the hallway track, uh, ridiculously. So, um, and I do think that that social aspect is so often overlooked. Like, hey, to me, the whole reason why I do the conference, like Linux and open source, as I use it for my company, is what pays the bills and puts food on the table. Right. Me but too, I felt like I was contributing more back to the community by holding a place for it to gather and socialize like they always want to but never can than to, and I don't mean to demean someone who is a package maintainer, but right. rather than merely maintain some packages like right. I used to. Sure. I felt like it's a more valuable contribution. Uh, there's, you, you just, just walk around the party and you, you may not see it at first, but you will find clumps of people and it's like clumps of Slackware people, clumps <laughs> of Dora people. It's people who work together for years and years online, but have maybe spent five hours next to each other in real life. And just being able to put those people together and let them kind of share a beer and recount the times and think about how they're going to improve open source going forward. I, I, you know, 
that's where I get the real value from running the event. How are you feeling about the event? I mean, we're we're T minus a couple of days away. Are, are you feeling like we're we're on the on the on the down path now? Where everything is kind of set up. Um, it's been, <laughs> it's been a busy last couple of years for me. Uh, the conference is finally getting back to where it, it should be. Um, like the last two years, I haven't gone to any other events. I basically I've had to focus all my time on my own company. Like you know more important higher priority interrupts on the bus to make it uh, in geek speak yeah you know shelter um, and food and stuff you, you know if if you're self-employed and there's a problem with your company oh, well there's no other person to go call to fix that like you know all hands on deck um but that's all squared away and i'm looking forward to the conference getting back to full strength like i've, I've caught up on everything one of the things i'm going to be doing at the event uh this year is using our gigabit internet connection to push all of our archival st- uh, uh footage onto f- onto platforms that look like they're more long-term friendly to to content like archive.org and vimeo mm. i want it to be somewhere other than just youtube especially after i've had to fight youtube so bitterly over getting stuff taken down because we had entire years worth of videos flagged by youtube because our sponsors had ads video ads in the video and they licensed audio works legally to be used for that purpose but of right. course youtube's robots don't know that yeah and the you know whoever the actual human is at insert giant corporation here obviously doesn't much care about a tiny little free to attend conference in Charlotte when they're reviewing their YouTube copyright, you know, disputes. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to, uh, getting caught up on all that. And next year, uh, kind of getting back to where things have traditionally been, uh, like for the first time in a long time, the self 2020 dates are already available. The hotel room block is already available. So getting, Getting from a survive mindset to a thrive mindset. That's awesome. And you can kind of move the needle forward. Yeah. Well, I, and I, I've said this before publicly, I'll say it again. I appreciate the opportunity to be involved. It's been, a, it's, you're a, you're a fun person to work with because we, all three of us share a, a like-minded goals. We're all very Linux focused people, Linux first, like all of the machines running Linux, all of the equipment that we're deploying running on Linux, everything is running free and open source software. We're broadcasting on free and open source software. We're making sure that every, it's a Linux first event everything else second which i think aligns pretty well with this show and with the the goals that jt you and i are trying to do with with mind drip by the way i should mention if you come for a big announcement on saturday at 2 p.m there's going to be cake so even if you don't care about the announcement come for the cake there better be the cake better not be a lie that's yeah i I thought you were gonna say the cakes you missed your opportunity all right (laughs) All right, so so Jeremy, I, I want to talk to you, and you're the per- perfect person to talk to about. And I've actually I've been avoiding this topic since the start of Ask Noah because I didn't feel like I could do it justice. And and I just I have this belief that if you want to find out why somebody should use Red Hat or what the what the best client for Red Hat is, where it's a perfect fit, you go to somebody that has used Red Hat for for years and years and years and you ask them, why did you make that decision, right? You don't go to somebody who is using Ubuntu and ask them why they might use Red Hat. For me, if I'm gonna have a conversation about Gentoo, I wanna have it with somebody who uses Gentoo, who is a Gentoo user and who has lived and died by it, and that's you. I mean, you started back in college, I think, a website that you are running on Gentoo, then you, it turned into a very successful website, which you're now running on bigger servers that run Gentoo. And then you started automating your house, which also runs on Gentoo. And then you started a Linux conference, which runs on Gentoo. So 
you've installed some Gen 2. I'm detecting a trend here. <laughs> I, I guess let's start with this. Who, what is the target audience for Gen 2? How would somebody know that they really should be a Gen 2 user if they're using something else? Oh, boy. Um, uh, you know, the, the simple as possible would be if you're looking for something turnkey, turn away. If you want to be able to put your hands on all the levers of power underneath the hood and to hone your operating system into a precision tool that does precisely what you ask of it and then stays out of your way all the rest of the time, Gentoo's perfect for that. Is what I, I, what is the learning curve like for Gentoo? Is it something that somebody can can just start out with and kind of ease their way into, or is it they got to jump into a swimming pool feet first and and they better figure out how to swim or drown? Um, my advice to people is, you know, get a machine you don't care about, or uh, you know, a, spin up a VM in VirtualBox, what have you, and go through the Gentoo handbook and install Gentoo, but don't blitz through trying to get done like go at a reasonable pace i'd like to tell people don't feel bad you're going to screw up the first install and it's going to be entirely your fault because you're going to miss some instructions in the you know dozens of pages in the handbook or you're going to mistype something or whatever you're going to mess up that first time i don't know anyone who's who's eventually gone to gen 2 who hasn't messed up at least their first install what is what does that process look like if if i'm somebody i sit down i've got a computer i don't care about what does the install process of Gentoo look like? So back in the day, and this is still kind of the, the stereotype and the reputation it has, you, you had three choices for how to start with Gentoo. They're called Stage 1, Stage 2, and Stage 3. Stage 3 is you're handed a pretty much already built binary, bare-bones basic system that you just extract like you would any other binary. Stage 1 is... You're starting with only the bare minimum amount of binary for you to start compiling the rest of user land and the kernel. Stage two is kind of a compromise between those. Over time, that really people only do stage three anymore. And, and it's not because you're losing anything with a stage three. It's just giving you a head start. Like any disadvantage you have from generic binaries being handed to you at the beginning, as soon as you update them after you've configured the system, now they're, they're custom to however you're, you've specified. Now, you actually have people that you have, you, you've set up a laptop with Gen 2. Somebody will erase Gen 2. They'll put maybe a different operating system, Linux-based, but a different, uh, different operating system. <coughs> and then uh, they ship it back to you, and you've got this actually down to a fine science on loading it with Gen 2. You have some, some very interesting infrastructure in place to do that. Talk about that. Um, yeah, so Gen 2 makes it trivial to essentially make your own binary repository. Um, the, you know, the reputation that precedes Gen 2 is stare at code compiling all day. And if you're compiling Chromium or OpenOffice or LibreOffice or WebKit, even on modern hardware, yeah, that, that's going to take some, some minutes to compile. I don't care what machine you got. That's, that's a lot of code to compile. And if it's Chromium, I hope you got a lot of RAM, by the way, because every thread, <laughs> every thread you add to compilation time is going to add gigs of memory to you, what you need to then do cross-linking. Yeah, people think that it just takes a lot to run. They've never even tried to build it. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I look forward to the day when, you know, we can run Chrome on something other than a supercomputer. Um, so, anyway... Um, yeah, so it, it, it all just depends upon what... So, for example... Um, 
I have a fleet of laptops and they're all identical hardware. So what I do is I have what I have a master laptop and every time it compiles something, it saves a binary of what it's compiled. All the other laptops then phone home first to the master to see if there's a pre-prepared binary. And if so, it just fetches it and extracts it like any other binary distro. So if I need to reinstall from complete nothing Gen 2 on one of the laptops in the fleet, that's 10, 15 minutes tops. And that most of that time is just pushing files over Ethernet. Talk about your website a little bit. This is something. Tell me the story about how that website came to be, because it's kind of interesting. And there are probably a lot of college kids that are out there and they're thinking, I have an idea, but it could never be anything big or successful. It certainly could make me money. And that's not true. Um, so I'm a huge college sports fan. Um, down here in the South, college sports is like religion. Um, the, for the pro teams, they look at the South as New Orleans and Atlanta and then a bunch of places where there's no pro teams. Don't you mean religion is like sports teams? Yeah, you know, go to the Iron Bowl and you'll see what I mean by religion. Right. Um, so anyway, um, I, I always, you know, the South is... College football is the king sport here, and I kind of grew up in that culture, and I, I enjoy college football immensely. Um, way back in the day when I was in high school, there used to be a website called ACC Boards, and it was an independent fan-run message board. And um, this, to give you an idea of how old this is in internet terms, uh, this was Ultimate Bulletin Board, which is CGI Ben-based. So, ooh, <laughs> wow. ooh the performance. Um but it was the number one board for like half of the ACC conference. And it was one of the few places on the internet where most of the conference was gathered together. So like when Duke would play North Carolina, the fans would go at it on the boards. It would be a, a great, but unfortunately back then with when, you know, top of the line servers had a single core Opteron and an Opteron was a brand new chip. Um, you know, Duke would play North Carolina and the site would melt and go offline for two or three days. <laughs> um, uh, Scout, which is, I think now a subsidiary of Fox Sports or Yahoo, you know, one of the two big ones. Um, uh, they bought ACC boards and then promptly split everyone up into their own silo. So it went from one account, talk to everyone in the conference to one account, now go register again and again and again and again every time you want to talk to someone else. Um, I and a few other people thought, well, that that's a load of manure. Um, and so <laughs> we tried to recreate the experience and very quickly the thought was, well, why not, why just the ACE, why just the Atlantic coast conference? You know, why not all of, you know, top end college football division one? Uh, and so that was actually a big difference maker because the, uh, the big companies like Fox and Yahoo, they just, they don't care about the smaller conferences. So people who aren't college football fans have still probably heard of the SEC or the Alabama Crimson Tide. We're talking about the little guys now, like Kent State and the MAC, uh, the Ohio Bobcats out of the MAC, um, Appalachian State Mountaineers in the Sun Belt, those kind of teams. Uh, the smaller teams, because the big fish didn't want them because they weren't lucrative enough, they moved right in right away. And so a lot of the smaller teams came to be on the site, and then that pushed into bigger teams and bigger conferences, particularly as realignment happened. Uh, realignment 
more or less orphaned a lot of college football fans on the internet. Like you would have situations where all the conference USA fans were on the TCU website and then TCU left to the mountain West and then left to the big 12. And now all the conference USA fans have nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. And as that happened all over the internet, I kind of vacuumed up all the orphans. Um, and it became, it got to the point where eventually, um, you know, it, it probably took a good decade, but it started becoming self-sustaining. And then eventually it got to where, you know, it, with concerted effort, the money was rivaling what I was getting from my employer. And at that point, you're like, well, working for other people, hmm, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, so, yeah. This, this started in your dorm room on a computer that you built. Before that. It, it started even earlier that it was... I, I want to say I may have even been in late middle school when I was at the very beginning. Uh, I I was in the awkward situation where I'm running the technical back end, but passing the hat amongst people who actually have a job because I'm 15. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's how we kind of kept things going for the first couple of years. Um, So you, you, you built this is running Gentoo the entire time. And, but you get out of, you get out of college and you're like, man, this is a thing I can make a living, but I probably should move it out of my parents' basement. It should probably go in a data center. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. It, it, so um, really, really early days, I think it was our first non-shared hosting, which happened quickly. You can imagine how fast you melt a shared server with a CGI bin, anything. Um, it was a, a totally ch- like a Celeron dedicated box at a bargain data center and running a version of Debian that was frighteningly old, but it probably took us less than two years before we grew out of that. And when we grew out, the very first thing that I deployed was a, uh, a one U server, um, with Gentoo. And this was Oh three or Oh four. And I deployed that server with a single, it's a dual socket, but I deployed it at first with just one single core Opteron at the time it was sufficient. Thank you very much. <laughs> Gentoo's uh, that efficient. Uh, and um, I deployed that with kernel 2.4. I think it was somewhere around 2.420, somewhere in there. It was mid-life cycle of kernel 2.4. I still have that server. It's still running latest up-to-date Gentoo. If I needed to, it is in the rack cabinet about four feet to my left right now. I could unplug that hoist it under my arm and go take that to the data center in Atlanta and plug it right in. You, you've since upgraded, though. You have some cooler hardware. I'm guessing you're running on these days. The current stuff out there is Super Micro 1U Twins, which are much, much more modern and beefier. Um, but, you know, you know, ask yourself this. What other distro could you deploy something in 2004 and have current software running on the same box more than... <clears throat> 10 years later. Arch. He's and, now running and, two CPUs, by the way. <laughs> he, he upgraded. His, he had, some I, extra, I, he had the, the extra slot. I filled, filled the other socket. Thank you. All right. So let me ask you this. So Arch, I would tell you Arch would be another distro that you could conceivably have to 15 years later. And as long as you continue to update and didn't let it go more than 24 hours without updating, you'd be all right. Hey, but, don't get Debian, Debian a bad name. But would you have... Debian, you wouldn't have had to update. They'd still be on the same package. Exactly. Oh, did I say You're that out loud? I'm sorry. Ouch. I'm sorry. What uh, would you have the fortitude and the spine to run Arch in a production box? You know, if you had asked me that question five years ago, I would have given you a different answer. I have since done it, and I will tell you that it's fine in production, 
as long as you update it all the time. If you miss updates, you're going to run into a hard time. But let, let me ask you this. One of the things that got me into Arch, I did Arch, I went through the entire install as a learning process, which I know Gen 2 is a great thing for people that want to learn about Linux. You want to learn about how the system works, Gen 2 is a great place to learn. And I did that with Arch, and I got done, I went, well, that was <clears throat> fun. I'll never do that again, and I'll never use that in production because it takes a day and a half to set up. Then I found Antargos, and I went, oh, this is great. I can just, there's a, it's like Arch Easy button. I get Arch, but it's like a normal distro installer. Jeremy, does anything like that exist for Gentoo? Um, sort of. Uh, there's a couple of uh, distros that are kind of based off Gentoo and are more or less compatible, but they start you with a full binary stack. Sabayon was like the classic one. I, is, there's another one, though, but it's in the, the STEM field. It's the Calculate or yeah, something? Calculate. Calculate. Um, um, and that's more or less, think of that as a stage three on steroids. It's more or less the exact same thing as a stage three, but with more user land already compiled for you. Um, and so... <laughs> Arch in production, well, updating constantly is the exact opposite of my mindset as a curmudgeon sysadmin. Hey, I hey only... listen, listen, listen. I am a RHEL guy, okay? I have RHEL five boxes in production. No, no kidding. I mean, I really do. And the reason is because if it ain't broke, it don't fix it. And I, I swear by that. So if the server's running, I don't want to have to push new versions because you know what I'm doing? I'm creating problems for myself. And you know what I don't want to do? I don't want to create problems for myself. I have better things to do in my life. Says the man who just dissed Debian. Well, I, you know, I'm not saying I'm, you know, just I'm just saying they tend to, you know, they're not exactly fast moving tide is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. So in Gen 2, one of the um, better tools that isn't documented in the handbook nearly as good as it needs to be um, is it comes in a package called Gen Toolkit. It's called GLSA check. GLSA stands for Gen 2 Linux Security Advisory. And it allows you to check your currently installed packages against all known security advisories in GLSA. And if you have anything vulnerable, it explicitly tells you what it is. And it allows you to update just the vulnerable packages. That, to me, is huge because I only want to change a production system to patch security flaws. I only want to update it in big, huge leaps and strides when I've set aside time so that if something goes horribly wrong, I'm there to deal with it. And then you're going, you're going really far ahead. You're coming to current, is that right? Yeah, I yeah, I only do security updates or minor stuff. You know, if it's you know, you know, little user land utilities, maybe nano. If it's something like nano, yeah, go ahead, update nano. I don't care. But if it's like may, if it's like update Perl, no, we're not going to do that right now unless there's a security problem. Mm -hmm. um, and and weirdly, the thing that drove me to Gen two wasn't the server side and the enterprise side, though I came to love that more. Uh, perhaps most as time went on, it was Myth TV. Uh, I was using Myth TV back in the day when, like, instead of having to deal with the analog loophole to get stuff out at you know HD res, there was no HD TV. Um, you'd you'd take a Hapog, uh, a Hapog Win TV 250. I, I had think, one. Was my first capture card. Uh, I love that thing, and I loved Myth TV. But the problem with Myth TV is it takes a lot of elbow grease and setup, especially back in like 2002, 2003. Mm -hmm. Not the easiest thing in the world to install. And so I got really cranky that I would spend a half day getting Myth TV dialed in to where I liked it and everything worked and the guide worked and all the recording worlds worked. And then six months later, my distro would go, time to update. Yeah, you need to throw all that away. We, we got a new version now. <laughs> and I would go, you what? Um, 
I really had a problem with distros that thought it was an appropriate life cycle of six to 12 months for a release. I'm like, no, that's not a, no, that is unacceptable. And in a fit of rage over like one month over the summer between semesters, I burned through about a dozen distros before I landed on Gen 2. And each one I like did a full install, did the full import of all my Myth TV, set up Myth TV how I liked it. And invariably, like there would be problems. And Gen 2 was the first one where after I got it dialed in, I didn't have to touch it again. I could just update as I wanted what I wanted to. And I really got to appreciate, and I'm like spoiled. I'm spoiled bad with it now. I do not put up with any operating system that assumes I that assumes it knows what to do with the system more than what I tell it to do. Okay, so that brings me. To, so, so let me start with this. Did you you were on Gentoo originally because you were using that back in middle school? Is that right? Uh, so I actually started on Mandrake. Um, okay, and it was it was only after I got just absolutely disgusted with having to throw away my myth TV setup in Mandrake and Fedora and, uh, you know, and open and all the other distros back then. And Gen two was the first way well, arch didn't exist yet. Like arch wasn't so, a thing. So, so your site started on Mandrake and you then moved. So, to- it, so the site started on essentially Debian cause it's what the cheapy hosters were using. Um, but okay. as soon as it became hardware, I was deploying, it moved to Gen two. Are you happy now, JT? Somebody mentioned Debian. He said very positive things about Debian. No, no, no. I just, you know, I'm trying to give everybody their due. Okay. Trying to give everybody, I mean, I'm an old Slackware guy. Yeah. So right. I'm totally always left out in the cold. Right. How do you think I feel as a Fedora guy? Don't answer that. Yeah. Without Debian, how are you going to run your PHP 4 apps? <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm just so, kidding. I love you, Debian. So, so, you, so you, 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 you come over. Myth TV actually is what gets you involved in Gentoo. You start mm-hmm. playing with it. You say, okay, this is really great. This is really fantastic. But what keeps you on Gentoo? Because at the end of the day, if you want, I mean, honestly, Debian, as much as we're joking about it, wouldn't be a bad way to run your form because it does move slow and it does give you the security that you need in an agile way, but it's also going to keep you from hurting yourself because things don't move too fast. Why stick with Gen 2? Why not jump over to the Debian bandwagon? Or, um, you know, my beloved Rel. One of the one of the things I like about Gen 2 and Enterprise is it's very easy to seriously lock down the server from a security standpoint. Um, it's not as good as it used to be. There used to be a hardened profile, and it include all kinds of enhancements. It would add a hardened PHP patch set. Uh, it would add GRSec and other things into the kernel. It would add a hardened GCC um, tool chain, including uh, I think uh, no no pi no no PIE. It's essentially data execution kind of protections, but in, in during compile time, uh, if I recall correctly, it would add all this kind of stuff. Um, and it would do so with just turning on the hardened profile. You turned on the hardened profile, it adjusted all your use flags, bam, all that stuff. As soon as you asked for it, it was automatically compiled in. It was great. Um, but the other thing that makes Gentoo really good for security is minimize surface area. The fact that you are only installing what you asked for and only the features within that software that you have explicitly turned on and use flags. Your surface area of attack is so much lower than a binary distro because with a binary, they don't know what features you're going to need. So they compile all of them in and all of the dependencies. Um, that's, that's to me like the really underreported, underappreciated, you know, enterprise side of Gen 2. I think, you know, I, obviously I don't know, I can't speak for Google, but Google does 
as far as we know from news reports, run Gen 2 or whatever they've turned their own Gen 2 into in-house uh, in production. And I can totally understand why, because as we mentioned before, trivial to roll your own distro, minimal surface area, minimal um, intrusion into the software stack once it's set up. What's the advantage of using Gen 2 over Linux from scratch? Why not roll Jeremy Sands distro? I mean, why why have a distro at all at that point if you want that many controls? 80-20 rule. Essentially, you're... Um, for 20% of the effort of Linux from scratch, you're getting 80% of the benefit. Okay, that makes sense. How many people are using Gentoo Linux in pr production? Is that something that a lot of people are doing? Would you say it's something that, is there a community around people that are using this for professional enterprise? Or are you kind of like the guy that's venturing out at it and saying, hey, this really worked for Myth TV, and I know it really well, so I'll just go ahead and put it into production? It's, it is used a lot in production. It's just generally not talked about. Like I said, Google's using it a lot. Um, but from all now, Google doesn't talk about anything they're doing, but all the news reports are like, yeah, it's Gen 2 running in there. Um, there's a lot of, um, uh, enterprise services and servers out there that are also running Gen 2. Uh, the Linode for the conference, Linode supports Gen 2. You can just go get a Linode account and say, I would like a Gen 2 machine. And they will go, certainly, sir, here's your Gen 2 VM already spun up. Um, it's out there a lot, particularly in enterprise. Um, I know it's used um, it's used a lot in um, STEM type supercomputing applications as well, and I think that's because it can be again you're removing all the unnecessary bloat, and then you can tune specifically for your exact hardware. And I, I know the the stereotype for those who have been on the internet long enough is fun roll loops, but um, that you know the gcc compiler has come a long way and i'm not going to dare step into the the middle of that weird flame war between gcc and and clang and llvm and all this other stuff mm -hmm. but you know despite its you know some of its drawbacks gcc has come a long way in sane optimizations you don't have to go look up a bunch of obscure flags anymore you just pass march native and GCC on the fly takes a look at your hardware and compiles to optimize for it. Let me ask you this: as 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 is this a distro that you think would be optimized for utilitarian type? Uh, I, I guess appliance style Linux embedded devices. Like if I wanted to make a TiVo, you know, you used it for MidTV. Is that an appropriate use of Gentoo? Do you seeing that being a place to? I don't know if it's still the use case now, but I know a while ago, a lot of TVs actually used uh, Gentoo. Oh, did they? Yeah. So a Chrome OS is based off of Gentoo, is it not? I don't know. It I'm was sure. originally, I believe. I believe at one point it was. Maybe, maybe they changed it. But as you're describing it, the ability to only have what you need sounds like it would be really suited for somebody who wants a very basic Linux install that they want to build on top of. What are, as a Gen 2 user of, I don't know how many years at this point, what would you say are some of the lesser known tips and tricks if somebody's just getting into Gen 2, maybe they are a Gen 2 user, and they say to themselves, I didn't know that. I remember the very first time I started using Arch and somebody told me about PackEUR. I had been compiling everything from source because I thought that's how you did it in Arch. I mean, it's Arch, right? We do everything by hand. And, uh, and then somebody introduced me to like tools like PackEUR, and I was like, wow, this is much easier. I really like this. I mean, what are some of those things that you've learned over the years? Um, uh, the first is a package called Gen Toolkit. 
Uh, it includes the thing I mentioned earlier, the GLSA check, but it's got a whole bunch of other things in there. It'll allow you to take any arbitrary file in the entire file system, and you can say, what package did that come from? And it will tell you. You can, um, you can say, what packages are depending upon this one? And it will give you that answer. Like any kind of question you have of package management, it can answer for you. Um, I also like EIX. Um, it's, it's a cache for portage. Um, because Portage relies on flat files for all the different packages you can you can install. If you say Portage, uh, which the command for Portage is emerge, uh, the whole reason why it's called Portage is um, compiling from source in the way Gentoo does is very similar but not identical to how BSD does it. And in BSD, they're called ports. So it, it's kind of an homage to BSD because the software management is similar to BSD. There you did it. Now you made his head all big. <laughs> Let me <laughs> don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> but um, so the, the downside to that is if you say, um, hey, Portage, can you install this version of Python for me? It's going to have to go look at a lot of flat files sitting on your file system to give you the answer. But if you just want to, if you use EIX, it'll instantly tell you, oh, uh, I would install the package with these use flags. Like it'll give you the answer immediately cached. And then if you like it, then you can go pass it through to Portage. What does a software availability look like on on Gentoo? One of the reasons that people use Arch is because literally anything that runs on Linux is available on Arch and things that even aren't available on Linux somehow run on Arch. It's just weird that way. Uh, and, and they're responsible for getting a lot of packages into other distros. Uh, what does that look like from Gentoo? It's a mixed bag. Um, if it's server side, it's there and it's well supported. The enterprise side has a lot of support, um, owing in no small part to the, you know, the scores of people who are probably quietly using it like Google. The desktop side, eh, that's kind of my most persistent, largest gripe with Gentoo. They don't have enough package maintainers for desktop software. My pet peeve bug back in the day was Democracy Player. Um, there was a bug requesting a new maintainer to bring Democracy Player into the official tree. Democracy Player is just a podcatcher, but Back in the day, it was like one of the big ones for, and only ones for Linux. By the time someone actually looked to see if they could push it into the tree, the project had changed names three times from Democracy Player and then stopped to exist. <laughs> <laughs> like, that, that's not good. Um, there's just not enough desktop maintainers. Um, that being said, they have a tool called Layman, L-A-Y-M-A-N, and it allows you to install what are called overlays. They're called overlays because... It, it's software that is organized just like the portage tree, and it more or less sits right on top of it. Um, so it augments your existing portage. Like uh, there's one called, uh, like, so the command syntax would be layman space tack A for add space gamerlay. And that has like Steam and a whole bunch of games in it already ready to go. So, and there's a website, um, yeah, I'm sure you can Google it. It's got a just, it's an alphabet soup of a URL. Uh, but it allows you to search not only Portage, but all the major overlays as well. So the official tree is lighter than it should be, particularly on software on the desktop side that doesn't have a big following. That being said, there's probably already an e-build for what you're looking for in one of the major overlays already. Gentoo Sunrise is another huge one. The entire purpose of Gentoo Sunrise is to address that desktop problem. It is a community overlay repo. And the idea is after something has been well-seasoned and well-tested in there, they just automatically bring it into the main tree. Now, do you use Gentoo on your desktop? Is that your day-to-day -day driver? Yes. What desktop environment? KDE. Why? 
Um, I really like the configurability of KDE. Um, it's it's not been without some heartburn. Uh, the KDE three to KDE four was bumpy road for the first couple of releases. KDE four to KDE five <laughs> was a bumpy road. The first and couple that was of a wor- that was the worst time too because your choices were GNOME, which was going through its own shenanigans, and Unity, which was going through its own shenanigans. So that's why you know uh, being a source based distro. Um, and one of the little eccentricities of being a source-based distro is that you can have multiple versions of the same piece of software installed on the same system at the same time. I can have five, six, eight different versions of Python on the same system and then select through through various utilities which version I want to run system-wide, which version I want to run for each individual user. Um, that's something that's not very easily doable in a binary because... Right, yeah, we were talking about that earlier. It's like a house of cards, a binary distro with all the dependencies. If you move one card low enough in the dependency stack, like everything else yeah. linked to it caves in. Yeah, like when you change Python and Ubuntu. I learned that the hard way. So JT being the really funny guy that he is, and the, he always he's always got a, a quick you know wit and, and, and something funny to say, um, he knows of a site that has a collection of random comments from Gentoo users about Gentoo. And so I guess let's just give him an opportunity to kind of justify, uh, is it mea culpa for the entire community? Yes, congratulations. Your Latin lesson I'm for learning about half Latin. an hour. I'm learning Latin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I want to give Jeremy sort of the, the opportunity to, I'm going to, you know, just pull out a few of these quotes for him to either justify and defend the quote or to, you know, give the mea culpa of, yeah, okay, we're sorry about that. Are you fun roll looping right now? I am indeed. <laughs> you know, it's actually, it's sad. The original fun roll loop site is down, but because this is the internet and people are wonderful, there are mirrors, so you can't find it. So, okay, first quote that I'm going to pull out is, the performance gained by C flags on x86 is minimal at best, largely because the machines are still basically overclocked 386s at their core. That's kind of gray area. Um, you're not going to turn, you know, you're not going to turn an Athlon into an Opteron with some C flags. That's just not going to happen. That being said, particularly on some edge case workloads, being able to compile for your processor makes a huge difference, particularly with encryption and decryption. Like if you have the AVX instruction set and you're not compiling in support for that and then you try to encrypt or decrypt something that would otherwise use that instruction set, yeah, you're talking about two to three times magnitude difference in performance. Like it can, in edge cases, make a huge difference. For me in production, where it made a big difference versus binary distros was actually memory consumption because of the reduced footprint. Um, It doesn't sound like a huge deal unless you have a huge spike in traffic and that last couple hundred megs is the difference between hitting swap and dying or everything stays cached and keeps rolling. Um, You know, it it isn't the case all the time, but in some edge cases, the C flags can make a difference. Okay, number two. I use Gentoo because I'm a speed freak. I can't stand the thought that some of my packages might not be running as fast as they could be. This is the same person that has a Campbell soup can on the back of their Civic. I make no no Perhaps. defense made of that of that particular comment. <laughs> okay, number three. The simplest difference between Gen two and binary distros is not that you compile your own. That is just a side effect. What is far far more important is that you have the code, or rather, more importantly, the headers. Well. Binary distros like Arch give you the headers too, um, and it's not like you can't find the source. So, 
I'm going to go with giant unnecessary rear spoiler. Sounds about right. Maybe an underglow kit in there as well? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, the next one. Am I the only one who realizes that binary packages are almost useless? Um, I'm, that That's mostly... Mostly malarkey. Um, I, I would I would ask that person today, given that that was probably made some years ago, because it's fun roll loops. I would ask them, so, you're going to throw away Steam, are you? I don't think so. Yeah, or those NVIDIA drivers. Yes, yes. Okay, uh, next one. Binary packages are bad. If you don't use your system to compile itself, it will lose the ability to compile itself. Huge systems like GNOME, LibC are constantly decaying into complexity. Your pain is necessary. I was, it started out like I was going to be able to give that one the Stallman out. Like, I don't necessarily agree, but philosophically, I saw where you were coming from. Then you just took a hard turn real quick in there. Boy, um, mostly malarkey. But there is some merit to the fact that Gentoo does unearth an awful lot of bugs in user land, particularly when it comes to GCC. Um, you got to ask if if it weren't for a source-based distro that had a big user base, like would these bugs be found quite so readily? Um, and I mean, weird, weird bugs. Like one compiler bug that I ran into in production. Um, if you compiled... Uh, Qmail with TAC02, which is like modestly aggressive C flags. Mm -hmm. Everything would compile perfectly fine, and your mail would never go anywhere. It would just enter a black hole void, never to be logged or seen or heard from again. And that was a compiler bug. I don't even know how... Like, it, it screwed the program up, but not enough to fail compilation. And not enough to give you an error when starting the service. It would just quietly go, everything is vanishing. You, you can imagine that, how long that took to unearth as a bug. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Having done development, there's some bugs that, that you run into that you're just, you look at and you go, no, this can't, this can't actually be happening. And you go through and you're debugging. You're like, no, no, this cannot be happening. But it is. <laughs> but it can't. Like, I'm looking at the code. And there is no way that this is going to ha- crap. It just happened again. That Qmail bug was one of those times where life imitated art. I, I was the guy in the XKCD comic on that one forum thread from several years ago with the one post. He's had the problem. Where is this guy? Can I talk to him? We got we got a couple more, right? One or two. Okay, yeah, we can, we can keep going. Um, the next one. The practice of backporting fixes is not appealing to me. <coughs> If upstream decides the change is big enough to warrant a new version, well, you know, it's their app. They should know. Backports are a good way to accumulate cruft. Uh, I I don't agree with that at all. That oh, yeah. I I am not a fan of being flippant uh, flippant to your end users. Like that's what drove me away from Arch years ago. I briefly changed my daily driver from Gen two to Arch. And what sent me running for the hills was um, there was a new uh, it, there was a new X, and the NVIDIA drivers would not work with it. And it was a known bug. NVIDIA said we're, we're working on a new driver. Give us a couple days. And uh, lo and behold, uh, Arch's official policy was it's new. 
we're not going to defend you from that. And they pushed the update knowing it was going to break X for anyone using the NVIDIA binary. And that just, that infuriated me to no end that they cared that little. In 15 seconds or less, somebody, you're taught, you have 15 seconds to talk to somebody about Gentoo. What would you tell them to get them to try it? Install the handbook. You will go from novice to pro in two failed installs flat. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And JT, all the work that you do on the backside that nobody ever hears about publicly, thank you very much. And and it's going to be exciting to hang out with both of you guys for the rest of the the week. And and then we'll do self at the end of it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. Hey, that's it for this hour of the Ask Noah show. But hey, you can check the entire episode out. We got a ton of show notes for you, a bunch of Gen 2 links, all the stuff that we didn't have time to get to in the show. We'll be back next Tuesday, well, actually Saturday at 2 p.m., right from Southeast Wings Festival.